Ecclesiastes chapter 1, this morning verses 12 through 18. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Verse 12, I the preacher have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this is also but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much, much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Um, you know, I mentioned in our introduction uh, two weeks ago um, that some scholars have wondered why Solomon, if he's the author, would mention all those who ruled in Jerusalem before him. Uh, if, you know, David, his father, was his only uh, predecessor. Um, and they conclude that the book, many of them conclude that the book was written as a fictional royal autobiography um, where an author later on in history kind of uh, dons the mantle of Solomon, if you will, um, and speaks this wisdom to a group of gathered uh, people, specifically young men in Israel um, who were seeking wisdom, who were seeking wealth. Um, That was the original audience. Uh, But again, Jerusalem had many kings before David conquered the city. It was the home of the Jebusites for quite some time. So uh, only David and Solomon actually ruled over Jerusalem because after Solomon, the kingdom would be divided But Solomon is is the most capable individual possible um, for exploring the meaning of human existence through wisdom. And verses 12 to 18, most scholars certainly agree, is the key text for interpreting the entire book, the verses we're looking at today. Um, So we we believe clearly that this was Solomon um, and the goal of his search we see this morning We will go on to see over the coming weeks the methods he uses in the search and then finally the conclusion when it's all said and done. So just as in verse 1, this alludes no doubt to Solomon um, and this serves to assert that the author knows what he's talking about. Solomon knows as he has turned the world upside down in such a search for this kind of wisdom in life under the sun. So basically, he says, look, I've collected more wisdom than my predecessors. I have something to say. When I speak, you do well to listen. Now, some of you remember that there was a successful brokerage firm founded in 1904 that became a household name in the 1970s and 80s due to their, you know, advertising campaigns. Um, through a series of tele- television commercials. The firm was E.F. Hutton. E.F. Hutton. 
And the commercials would depict all kinds of scenes. It could be a group of people in a park, some social gathering, and they'd all be about running about doing their business. And all of a sudden, the camera would pan over to two people having a conversation, and it went something like, you know, you know my broker is E.F. Hutton. And E.F. Hutton says, and then everybody stops. Remember that? Everybody stops, and they move in like this. And then the voice of the commercial would say, when E.F. Hutton talks... People listen. You remember that? And that is to say, the sage of Wall Street had something to say, and you do well to listen. They want good financial advice. And here in Ecclesiastes, a true sage speaks. As the sage speaks, wisdom speaks. And it speaks in a reflective way. This wisdom is inspired by Almighty God, preserved in sacred scripture, and we, along with all of mankind, will do well to listen to what the sage has to say. Amen? So he talks about living life under the sun and the futility of of taking hold of life that isn't truly life. A lot of people try to take hold of life that isn't truly life. Now, the Apostle Paul reminds us about life that is truly life. When he writes Timothy, he says in 1 Timothy 6, God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He says, Timothy, charge this present age not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but to set their focus upon God. And in response to his goodness, in response to his grace, the one who richly provides... Do good, be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, he says. Thus, storing up treasure as a good foundation for the future. And then he goes on to say this. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Truly life. Centered, fixed upon God, our creator, and our redeemer. It's a focus that is a world view with Jesus Christ is sovereign Lord over all. So here the sage, the teacher, the preacher, the pundit, the expert describes what it's like to try to make sense of this life without any real consideration of God. Of divinity, of, of eternity. That is futility. Life lived under the sun, S-U-N. So Solomon, you know, he's turned the world upside down in search of fulfillment. And the question is, is there really life before death? Right? We, we hear it the other way around. Is there life after death? The question here, is there life, is there anything worth living before we die? So here the question is, what does life really truly consist of? Is there meaning under the sun, or is this some kind of crude joke? And I told you, I've had friends read this, and they said, like neighbors of mine. He says, I was reading Ecclesiastes, it seems hopeless. I said, that's the whole point of the book. That life is hopeless without a theocentric view of life lived under the sun. You know, Ernest Hemingway said, life is a dirty trick a short journey from nothingness to nothingness. And he believed it because he committed suicide. 
Speaking of that, there's a story. It's a funny story. A New York City police officer had a beat that he walked, and part of his beat consists of the, uh, the Brooklyn Bridge. So as he's walking his beat one day, um, he comes across a young man standing up on the parapet wall. He said, what are you doing up there? He says, get down from there. And the young man said, I'm going nowhere in this life. It's empty. It's futile. It's meaningless. I'm going to jump off this bridge, and I'm going to end it all. The policeman says, don't do that. Look, step down off the parapet. Stand here on the sidewalk with me. And I want you to take 15 minutes and describe for me why you think life is so meaningless. And then give me 15 minutes and tell you why life is really worth living. So they talk for a half hour, each stating their case in the agreed 15-minute time slot. And when they were both done, they joined hands. Then they jumped off the bridge together. (laughs) The young man was trying to live life without truly getting hold on what is truly life. And the same was true for the police officer. Walking through life, having in himself never taken hold of what is truly life. And that is life and our Redeemer. So Solomon here writes. He talks about all these experiences. He's going to try everything there is to try. Everything there's possible to find fulfillment in doing in this life. He provides a go at it. He gives a go. So... When he writes, he's not writing in linear fashion, as we're used to here in the West um, in communication, but he writes in poetic form. And that's the way many ancient writers communicated, as you well know, and a kind of, of circling or, or spi- has a kind of spiraling effect. In other words, he gets around to kind of talking about the same things over and over again, and it, it seems to be a bit redundant, but in reality, all he's doing is, is giving you a, an overview of this attempt from just different perspectives. It's kind of like apocalyptic literature, right? It, it shows you one truth from many different views. So this is how he, he draws out deeper truths um, to that which he's trying to communicate. So here the preacher thinks that there's fulfillment, in this case, on the road um, of intellectualism. This is the road he goes down here. Trying to make sense of life here on this earth, he tries to find meaning in education, intellectualism, human wisdom. You know, if we're just wiser and clever enough, we'll figure out this riddle of life. This is where he goes. And yet, in spite of all of his efforts, he becomes only more disenchanted. Notice he he acknowledges there's tremendous advantage here um, in human wisdom, and that's true. That's not bad in and of itself. It's valuable. It's worth having. And we see that especially um, described in chapter 2. But his point is it's not the ultimate answer. So he's not writing off all human wisdom here as, as being useless. But on the other hand, Um, He's very aware of its limitations. So verse 13, notice he says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Okay, now notice under heaven instead of under the sun. 
Um, he's going to mention under heaven elsewhere um, in Ecclesiastes, but it's not the most common expression used. Now, some people, some commentators, some teachers uh, believe that he uses under heaven here um, to be synonymous with under the sun. And he uses it, they say, occasionally so as to avoid you know, being too repetitive. That's what some believe. But it's more probable, and it makes much more sense, that it's used here so as to recognize the Creator. To elicit God's presence, that is, His sovereignty and His providence over all things. So here, it's an expression placed in deliberate contrast to life under the sun. And it highlights the futility of of human existence when it's lived in the denial of or disregard for the Creator. So the expression under heaven is, is more than some synonymous, synonymous stylistic expression. I do not believe it, it's there for that purpose. And I'll show you why as we move through here. Heaven is God's knowledge, acknowledged domain. Amen? Even pagans know that. So it evokes something that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, we read verses 26 to 28, God is made in the image of man. In the image of man, he created the male and female, and he gave them dominion. He gave Adam dominion over the earth. That's the cultural mandate. Delegated dominion, delegated authority to rule over and subdue the earth, to tend to it, to work it, and to multiply within it. Okay, Before the fall, that's a very good thing, amen? Very good thing. We read in Psalm 8, You have given him dominion, that is man, over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the seas, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. So this is naturally a drive placed in the heart of man by God as regards dominion over the earth God has created. We we see this throughout life. Man has dominion over the earth. It's pointed out Thursday night with the men. There's not one object in this room, no piece of clothing, your eyeglasses, these chairs, this carpet, this pulpit, this building that doesn't come from this earth. Amen? Amen? So man has been given dominion, the drive placed in man. But here, verse 13, in context to that, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Why? How? Well, once we look at the effects of the fall, we have an answer. When we get to Genesis 3, we see that everything that's created is now under the curse. So man tends and he works and does what he's called to do originally now by the sweat of his brow. So it will be only through pain that you will multiply on this earth. It will only be by way of the sweat of your brow that you will tend to that which I have created. So because of sin, God's mandate, that which is Delegated to man is now a burdensome task. Now, as he goes along, notice 
he changes direction again. Right? Having started out with an under-heaven perspective, that is a theocentric view, he now shifts back to an anthropocentric, man-centered view. Fallen man, that is. Making this, that's why I say this is a definite radical contrast under heaven, under the sun, in, in not a synonymous picture that's being drawn. So this quest for discovering what is done on earth, under the sun, without taking into consideration the one who resides above the sun in heaven, is a meaningless task. It's futile. That's the point. So in other words, the quest for meaning and wisdom has turned from wisdom grounded in God and his word to wisdom that is based solely on human ability. So his search for meaning here, if you think about this, is he talks about under heaven and under the sun, certainly depicts something of Solomon's life. Amen? Now remember, a couple weeks ago, we looked at how Solomon started his reign with a very theocentric view. Okay, remember 1 Kings chapter 3. He prays to God, Give your servant therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? And it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. So here's a man, young, takes the throne of his father David, and is intimidated by the fact that he has to lead all of these people. So he begs, he pleads, and he asks for God's wisdom. He asks for godly wisdom. And God is delighted that he asks for such wisdom rather than fame and riches. And he ends up with it all. Wisest man, richest man, greatest king, time of peace. But later on, 1 Kings 11, notice, when Solomon was old, and, when Solomon was old his wives turned away his heart after other gods. His heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Now, that's quite a shift in the heart of Solomon, amen? Theocentric view to a man-centered view. We see it in the the very reign of Solomon over Jerusalem. So we we see a shift. um, Verse 16, I said in my heart. Notice this now. Verse 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So the focus there is what the author himself has done. The verbs here are used in causative form. I caused, I made, I did, right? I caused myself to grow in wisdom. Such is the pride of man, amen? And for the Christian as well, you start out dependent upon the Lord, thankful to the Lord. And sometimes you'll see Christians go through life, they become angry with the Lord, bitter towards the Lord dependent upon themselves, dependent upon their way. 
depend upon their finite wisdom. Amen? We ought to beware of this. So wisdom that is a gift from God, it's nowhere in sight here with Solomon. It's man's wisdom that's on display. So although this search for wisdom is taking place in an anthropocentric manner and not with a theocentric perspective, he still conducts this search with utter seriousness and great diligence. We see this, do we not? The, the, the diligent pursuit of seeking worldly philosophy. Right, so philosophy is basically something you can get a PhD in, right? In, in, in the search for truth, which you have to conclude you can never come to the place of finding truth. So we say we're searching for truth, but yet truth can't be found. So the more you communicate the fact that you can't, reach the place of truth, they give you a PhD for it. And here, they work hard at it. Solomon worked hard at it. All that was in him, seeking this type of intellectualism, very comprehensive investigation goes on here. And I, verse 17, applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and to know folly. Madness and folly. That is, he, he seeks to know human wisdom better by exploring its opposite extreme, whatever that is. And yet the result is not quite the extreme opposite. Not what he imagined, but he tried it anyway. So whatever conclusions Solomon arrived at here, under the sun, he describes... In verse 14 and verse 17, as striving after what? Wind. Striving after wind. All systems of human philosophy under the sun lead up a blind alley, beloved. Knowledge of God who rules from heaven can't be known through human wisdom. You know what I hear on TV all the time, these news commentators? How do you end people shooting one another? How do you stop all the violence? How do you stop all, all, uh, all the evil? Their answer is what? Education. These people, they say, need to be educated. Nothing wrong with education. But knowledge of the one true God does not come by way of mere education. It comes by way of what? Special revelation. Special revelation. You cannot take natural man, natural fallen man, who's alienated from God, who's at enmity with God. You cannot take him and give him an education expecting him to assist in solving all the problems of life. It's not going to happen. Human wisdom, intellectualism, this kind of education, philosophy, psychology cannot correct man's crooked nature. That's the point. Verse 15, what is crooked, he says, cannot be made straight. Here's all this human wisdom. Here's the road of intellectualism that, that, I, that I traipsed down okay, under the sun. 
that what is crooked cannot be made straight, what is lacking cannot be counted. We enter life bent. We enter life crooked. And there is no number of PhDs that can straighten out the problem. Amen? Not going to happen. What did Jesus say in John 3? That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. That's supernatural revelation. Lest a man be born from above, he cannot see the kingdom. How does this happen as the wind blows to and fro? You hear the sound of it. You do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who's born of the spirit. So trying to catch the wind here is a picture of utter futility. Trying to make sense of one's own existence apart from God is utter futility. That's the point. So the attempt here of human philosophy, it it may, humanly speaking, leave no visible stone unturned, but the end is the same, utter failure. Crooked, can't be made straight. I was cleaning my windows the other day. And you know, you take the screen out, you pop the screen out to get to the thing, and instead of going inside and grabbing the two handles that they make to, to pull it over, I tried to do it from the outside, and when I did it, it, it bent the frame, right? You know what happens when you bend that frame? You will never get it straight again, ever, ever. It's done. What's crooked cannot be made straight, so I'm going to have to go get a piece and redo it. It's done. Notice verse 15b, what, what is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, you can't count things that aren't there. If you don't have it, you can't count it as profit. And we say, you know, don't count your chickens before they hatch. Is that our saying? Don't count your chickens before they hatch. Certain things in life just don't add up, basically, what he's saying. And that is with wisdom sought under the sun. It's a futile attempt. Verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. You know, one man has said that the more you understand, the more you ache. The more you understand, the more you ache. Medical doctors have to learn to manage this type of knowledge. Because a medical doctor oftentimes knows things that if you knew them, would throw you into hopelessness. So they often have to discern how to be honest, but at the same time give you hope and energy for the battle. I witnessed this when my little brother, three years ago, was in an accident, and he was, uh, had major, major head trauma. So he was unconscious laying there, and my father asked this top neurosurgeon, so doctor, like, what damage has been done? And this is what he said to my dad. He goes, sir, you don't want to know what I know. You don't want to know what I know. That's the kind of knowledge that that produces this kind of grief. The more you know, right? With much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. That's an example. And in the greater realm, outside of the medical field... As finite knowledge and understanding grow, so does the pain. 
The more you study and the more you know, the more you realize what? You don't know. It's like, well, I really don't know a thing. The more you study theology, the more you study church history, the more you study doctrine, the more you study systematic theology, biblical theology. You rejoice in one sense that you're growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, and yet, on the other hand, it's like, I don't know much. And beware when you think you do. You think you've arrived. And you become unteachable. So the deeper one pursues the direction of man-centered wisdom, the deeper the problem in trying to live life under the sun. You know, we don't like to hear that our lives have no meaning outside of God. We don't like to hear that our accomplishments, they really don't matter. You think about all of the people who live under the sun with no acknowledgement of Almighty God, incredibly talented. They provided much to and for society, but they do not like to hear, perhaps we don't like to hear, that our lives and our gifts and our talents really don't matter in the great scheme of things unless they're done for the glory of God. It's offensive. And we're easily offended because we're rebels, but by the grace of God at heart. Amen? We are rebels under the sun. So to be smart and wise and to seek intellectualism without a theocentric view of life is truly utter folly. Look at 1 Corinthians 1. It is written, verse 19. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God, listen to this, through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It's God's wisdom that saves, amen? It's God's wisdom that sustains us. It's God's wisdom that guides us, protects us. Christ is the mystery revealed. Ephesians, he's the mystery revealed. All that the Old Testament pointed forward to, all of this wisdom, the beginning of God, the, 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 the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, which we'll hear this morning. So a true under heaven perspective is to live one's life centered on Christ, is to be led by the Holy Spirit. It's the reason we're here, Amen. So to those who live life under the sun from that perspective, that message is absolute foolishness. 
The gospel message is foolishness to those who are what? Perishing. First uh, Corinthians two. Is it up there? Beginning in verse eleven. Thank you. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have ultimate wisdom, the mind of Christ. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Remember that when you're ridiculed at work, mocked by your unbelieving, you know, Uncle Ted or whoever. Remember that. So although there should be no question as to whose wisdom we ought to be seeking, even Christians in our day fall into this under-the-sun mindset. And unfortunately, you see it in the setting of the gathered church. Some Christians think as though they're living under the sun, having been convinced by the world that all serious, sincere roads of faith lead to God. That's folly. That truth actually, that kind of thinking actually denies the truth of Christianity and exalts man. Don't go down that road, beloved. What about all the Muslims who are sincere? What about them? They need the gospel as badly as I do. Universal tolerance. God loves everybody equally. Some Christians say that. God loves everybody unconditionally. Is that biblical? No. God's love is conditioned upon his son alone. God accepts you just the way you are. No, he does not. He says, repent and believe in my son. That's folly. And many Christians fall into this kind of thinking. You take, for instance, uh, much of the emphasis in mainstream evangelicalism. What's the emphasis as people gather? Is it on God or on man? It's on man. Give them what they want. Lord forbid there's a pulpit that's elevated above the people. Lord forbid that some guy wears a suit when he preaches the word. And as a reminder, why do we do that? Let me tell you. I was thinking about this this morning when I was putting on my tie because I don't really like wearing ties, actually. You're going to go home, some of you, and watch football today. 
And every one of the commentators, they're all ex-jocks. So you'd think they'd be sitting around in jerseys. What are they wearing? Suits, expensive ones. (laughs) Nice ones. To commentate about football. Right? Why? Because they believe that what they do is very significant. The elders wear a suit. We don't ask you. I don't care how you dress. Well, to some degree. Kind of do. The elders wear suits because we're going to read scripture. We're going to preach the word. We're going to pray. And we believe that what we do from this place is incredibly significant. That's why we do it. Why is there a pulpit? Why is it raised above everybody else? Because it's where the word of God sits. Now, today in modern evangelicalism, many people want to bring it down because it doesn't meet the people where they're at. That's nonsense. That's folly. That's taking on this under-the-sun perspective, as far as I'm concerned. So their goal is to increase numbers. So to increase numbers, you have to entertain the masses. So you've got to give them what, they, what their itching ears want. Amen? Versus what they need. This is what they need. So this is how this under-the-sun perspective affects God's very own people. They don't want to hear sermons that call them to repent. They don't want to hear sermons that call call them to live a more Christ-like life because that might what? Offend. Don't preach expositionally. That might bore them. Don't teach about doctrine. That might offend and bore them. (laughs) Amen? Amen? So they have these structures that are in place to pacify people and to feed on their emotions. This isn't a sidetrack. These are in my notes. Because this is real. If we want to wonder how an under-the-sun perspective affects God's people in the church community, those are some of the ways. We must, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, we must destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's how we conquer the temptation to live with an under-the-sun perspective rather than under-heaven perspective, rather than a theocentric perspective. Very little of modern media promotes an under-the-heaven perspective. Amen? Very little provide a theocentric view of life. So as you're bombarded all day with under-the-sun perspectives of life, we have to take them and destroy every one of the arguments every lofty opinion that's raised against ultimate knowledge and ultimate wisdom, and that is the wisdom of Christ, his word. This is how we have to be on guard. 
So we can't help but to be exposed to this under the sun perspective. Amen? That's where we live. That's where we live. So we have to take steps continually that help us to maintain the locus of our focus. Theocentric, God-centered, Christ-centered life under heaven. Amen? That's all I have to say about that. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the preacher. What did Jesus say? What was it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? 